The estimated time of the writing of this is about A.D. 90, A.D. 90, A.D. 91. So coming toward the end of the very first century. And so he is telling the church, stand for the pure gospel, the gospel that you heard from me, the gospel that I received from Jesus Christ. Stand for this gospel. And he encourages them to to live what they profess in chapter 1, verses 5 through 4. That if we say something and we do not do it, that the truth is not in us, he reminds them. He proceeds to tell the church that forgiveness of sin is found only in Jesus Christ. And we see that in verses chapter 1, verse 9 to uh, chapter 2, verse 2. He then reminds the churches the true evidence of knowing Christ, the true evidence, the proof of knowing Christ is in the way that we live, found in chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. And then lastly, we have seen that John goes on to remind the church that obedience, obedience is the evidence that believers truly love God. It is obedience. That is the evidence that's brought about by the new birth. I've entitled this message today called, Do Not Love the World. And today we're going to be seeing in our text that as believers, there's no room for us as believers to love the world. As John calls on believers, stay focused, stay focused on Christ. And doing the will of God. I think there's a real important reminder in that for us today. Because I'm not too sure there's ever been a time in history where there's been more distraction today. All you social media junkies. All you Facebook lovers. I don't do social media. My life isn't important. I don't think so. But all of what social media has done, the, the, the rage of news all the other distractions that we have have a tendency to take our eyes off of those things which are very important, right? And so it's very easy in this day and age to get distracted. And First John speaks very specifically to the fact, let us hold to Christ. Let us hold to those things that are important. Look in your Bible at First John chapter 2. Verses 12 through 14. I'm going to read through 12 through 14 right now. And it says this, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I have written to you, children, because you know the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. John states his reason for writing. Uh, He states his reason for writing this is that he is proclaiming forgiveness of sins. He's proclaiming the gospel. He's proclaiming that Forgiveness of sins is found only in Jesus Christ. And I want to make an important point. Why does God forgive sins? There's one answer to that question. He forgives sins because it pleases him 
to do so. It pleases God to do so. I don't know about you, but that is a very humbling, humbling thought. That the Father is pleased. I was listening to a message from Paul Washer recently, and Paul Washer makes this amazing statement. He goes, when the believer gets to heaven, Christ is going to be a million times more happy to see the believer than the believer to see Christ. Just think about that for a moment. Christ is going to be a million times more happy to see the believer than the believer to seek Christ. Here we see in verses 12 through 14, John is writing, and he uses the illustration of little children, young men, and fathers. And he's speaking through some of the the maturity. Little children means those that are the born ones. It's a title of respect from from a student to a teacher. But what he's really doing is he's really scanning the church for the different levels of maturity that exist in there. Look at verses 13 and 14. He says, I'm writing to you fathers. Those would be the mature ones. Those would be the grounded ones. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him him who has been from the beginning. I'm writing you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I've written to you, children, because you know the Father. I've written to you, fathers, because you know him, him who has been from the beginning. I've written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. And continuing in the same thing, John is writing to believers of all degrees and all levels of maturity within the church. Little children are those that are going to be young in the faith. The young adults are those who are slightly more mature. And the fathers are those that are the most mature. Remember, the gospel has been out there now for about 60 years. There have been people who were raised through Judaism that had the full grounding of the Old Testament. They had the full grounding of the Old Testament in there. And they're writing, and he's writing to them. He says, Fathers, you've known him from the the beginning. Little children, you've come to know him. And so he kind of tees up the scene here with this encouragement. And John reminds the churches that all levels, regardless of all levels that we are in Christianity, it is critical, it is incumbent that we press on to maturity in Jesus Christ. God never wants anybody to be a baby Christian. We're always to press on, to press on, to press on. Paul talks about that in Philippians. I press on for the upward call in Christ. That was the Apostle Paul. He talked about in Philippians chapter 3 how he leaves everything behind. He left his professional resume. He left everything to know Christ. And when you see that word K-N-O-W in the New Testament, it is always referring to that knowledge which is experiential. That knowledge which is intimate. That knowledge which means to know. It doesn't mean you know, a collection of separate facts that they have. 
Even the word of God speaks about this. Look at Hebrews 6.1. Hebrews 6.1. The writer of Hebrews writes this. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God. He says, leaving the elementary things. That means uh, the way that's interpreted in the Greek, those are the ABCs, the one, two, threes. The very basic things you would teach a very young child. Not, you know, leaving those elementary things behind. Let's press on to maturity. Peter put it this way in 1 Peter 2, 3, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word that you may grow in respect to salvation. And we're going to see later on in 1 John, John puts it this way. And we know that the Son of God has come and He has given us understanding in order that we might know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true in His Son. And this is the true God and eternal life. Believers in Christ are to press on. How do you press on? How do you press on? Well, you're never going to press on to maturity if you ignore the study and the reading of the Word of God. And you're never going to press on to maturity if you spend no time alone with the Lord in prayer. And you're never going to press on to maturity if you forsake the assembling of the brethren together. And you're never going to press on to maturity if you don't step out in faith and serve others. That's paramount. You know, the church assembles, it assembles for the edification so that we would grow in the Word of God. But then there comes a time when you grow in the Word of God that you then step out and you do the will of God. Let us not be the kind of people that we hoard, we hoard, we hoard knowledge. People of, of, of tremendous knowledge. Look at the church in this nation today. We got more Christian bookstores. We got more Christian books. We got more Christian music artists. We got more Christian colleges, more seminaries, more everything. Bigger churches, better churches, high-paid preachers, low-paid preachers. Take a look at it. Look at Orlando itself. There's a church on every corner. But where is the power of God in the church today? Tons of people hoarding the word of God, taking it in, taking it in, but head knowledge only and not heart knowledge. I submit to you that God has called the believer in Christ to step out in faith and do the will of God. Is the desire for God coupled with the spirit of truth can move believers from spiritual children to mature fathers and mothers in the faith. Believers, please, I beg you, never be content with the basics of the faith. Now I want to shift and I want to focus particularly on verses 15, 16, 
and 17. Because this is pivotal here. And I'm not sure that people fully get the gist. Many times this is missed. Look at verse 15. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. What is something that gets in the way of your devotion to Christ and your obedience to his will and to his word? I'm going to submit that probably the greatest thing that comes in and brings distraction is the world. Now, let's understand this word as it relates in the original text. This is the Greek word, cosmos. It's the Greek word, cosmos. And it literally means... Something ordered. It's something that is ordered. It refers to the world or the world system, how the world is structured. So when you see John writing here, when you see James writing that we're not to have friendship with the world, he's talking about the world system. The world system, right? It's the world order. How many times you're hearing that word today? Oh, you know, we're, we got to come into a new world order. Let me tell you something. We are going to come into a new world order, except the problem is it's going to be headed by an antichrist, and his world order is going to be to, to attack the people of God, but God is sovereign, and he will bring about his end. Now, the world order here is under the rule and reign of the prince of the world. The prince of the world being Satan, our adversary. Now I want to put it right out on the table. He does not have authority over God. He is not stronger than God. And he can only do what God permits him to do. You hear a lot of preachers today, you would think that Satan was in charge and God's like, you know, scrambling to figure out what to do because Satan is so smart. It's just the other way around. God is in control. God is the sovereign of the earth. But Satan is, notice he is the prince of the world. He's not the king of the world. He is the prince of the world. And the prince of the world has his minions and he has his demons that roam throughout the earth causing mayhem, particularly rebellion toward God. In John 12, 31, the words of our Lord Jesus Christ said this, Now judgment is upon the world. Now the ruler of the world will be cast out. In Ephesians 2, verses 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul makes this statement, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked, notice what he says here, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that, was not work, that is now working in the sons of disobedience. The cosmos, this world system, what does it advocate? It advocates disobedience to God. That's what it advocates. 
disobedience to God. It is corrupted by sin. It is corrupted by the fall of man. It advocates and teaches everything that is opposite to the things of God. Everything. My goodness, just turn on the news. That's enough to make a a good case for this, right? But there's another thing that it does. It shifts focus. See, as believers in Jesus Christ, our focus is on Christ. Our focus is on the kingdom of God. There's an old saying, right, and people used to say about Christians, you're too heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. But you know what's happening in the church today? The church today, many people are too earthly minded that they're of no heavenly good. And one of the things that the world system does is it distracts, it camouflages, it distorts, it denies the very holiness and the authority of God. Listen, John the Apostle of Love gives a very direct and clear command here. This is not an option. Look what he says. Do not love the world. I want to call your attention to that word love because that's a critical word there. Ironically, the Greek word there is from the root word agape love. And agape love is sacrificial, preferential love. And when it's used in the scriptures of God, it is demonstrating God's preference to love sinners. God's sacrificial love in that he gave Jesus Christ as his only son, as an offering for sin. But here John uses that word. Do not love the world. Do not Christian have a preference for the world. Do not prefer the things of the world. This is the admonition that's going out. Do not prefer the things of the world. And he gives us the reason why. He says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Well, how could anyone love a world that is in direct opposition to the things of God if that is where your affection is, if that is where your desires are, if that's where you are going, then it is impossible that the love of God would be in you. You know, the scriptures are very clear regarding this issue of loving the world. We see this in the very temptation of Jesus Christ. Look at Matthew chapter 4, verse 8. The scripture records again the devils took him, Jesus, to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the, of the world and all of their glory. Remember I said how the world distracts, how the world camouflages, that even Satan himself would make an attempt on our Lord Jesus Christ and show him all the kingdoms of the world, all the glory of the world in anticipation and hope that this would change Jesus, that he would sin, and if he sinned, he no longer would become a sacrifice. In Matthew 6, 24, 
Our Lord Jesus Christ makes this statement, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And mammon is the acquisition of things, the acquisition of wealth. In John 15, 15, he said, speaking of the world, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Don't you see that today? Do you see the animosity that is directed at believers in Jesus Christ today? 2,000 years ago, our Lord gave us the answer. If you were of the world, the world would love you. But because you're not of the world, the world hates you. The Apostle Paul gave this advice. You probably know it by heart. Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, this cosmos, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. And of course, James, in James 4, 4, Speaking on this very subject, says, You adulteress, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility, or as the King James says, it's enmity. Enmity is striving against God. It's warring against God. Notice what James says. Friendship with the world is war with God. Christians, we have to make a choice. And that choice is Whom will we serve? we got to be like Joshua. Choose ye this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my household, I will serve the Lord. You cannot in Christianity have one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom of God. You cannot serve God and mammon. Listen, God calls men and women, he calls men and women with the gospel for a very explicit purpose, that we would be a kingdom of priests to our God, 1 Peter says. What kind of priest serves in an unholy temple and at the same time in a holy temple? God has called us to serve him and him alone. And listen, there's a cost that comes with this. Many churches for years have taught that you can have the world and have Jesus at the same time. Many have been lulled to sleep with this philosophy. It has created what I call cultural Christianity. And that salvation is in Christ, but you can have Christ as a bolt-on to an already great existing life, and you could enjoy the rest of the world as well. Many times it comes with trusting the fact that you are a good person and that you don't do anything bad. And I help old ladies across the street, and I pay my taxes, And I never speed, and I'm a law-abiding citizen. And listen, all that's good. I want to say that. All of that is good. 
But I want to tell you something. It is not enough to save your soul. The Bible is very clear. He tells us that all of our works of religion, all of our works of righteousness, the Bible would tell us, there is filthy rags before the Lord. See, we as, we as fallen creatures, we, what we don't need is to be reformed. What we need as fallen creatures is to be transformed. And the only thing that can transfer, transform us, or the only one who could transform us, is when we come with faith and repentance to Christ. Listen, I've talked to a lot of people who say, man, I used to go to church. I used to do this. I used to do that. But you know what? That got tapped out. Or you get the more popular issue, right? Everybody in church is a hypocrite. Really, everybody? Everybody? They're all hypocrites. I had somebody say that to me one time. They're all a bunch of hypocrites. I go, do you work? They said, yeah, I work. I go, are there any hypocrites on your job? Is your boss a hypocrite? Well, does your boss say one thing and demand one thing of you, but does something entirely different themselves? Well, kind of, yeah. Did you quit your job? Oh, no, no, no. Did you go to school? Yeah. Were they hypocrites in your class? Yeah. Did you quit your education? No, no, no. Are they hypocrites in the church? Yeah. Because it's a microcosm of our society. But you know what? There are the redeemed, the sanctified, the spirit-filled, the ones whose hearts and desires on God, right? There are the redeemed of God who will come along and who will serve you in the love of Jesus Christ. I had somebody tell me, he said, with everything that's wrong in the world, I don't know how you could believe in God. I looked at that person, I said, with everything that's wrong in the world, I don't know how you could believe in man. What's man's greatest achievement? Every bit of technology we, we use, we try to figure out a better way to kill our fellow man. It's man that goes in and does the shooting and the stabbing. It's, it's man that does all these things. Oh, yes, I believe in a God, a holy, beautiful, glorious God who loved the world so much that he gave his only son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And you know what? Although you may consider yourself good in the eyes of the world, you need to be made right with God. And that only comes, that only comes, listen to me clearly, please, I beg you. That only comes as you surrender completely and totally to Christ. You may not have everything answered in your mind. Here's a flash. Neither do I. But you must come. 
In repentance and faith, you must come surrendering everything to Christ. You must come asking for forgiveness of sins and entrust yourself completely and wholly to the finished work of Christ on the cross. Without Christ, without repentance, there is no salvation. Without Christ and repentance on that great day, you'll stand there in your own righteousness and you will not be saved. Christ extends to you right at this moment the offer of salvation. Will you come to Christ and come to him and cry out as I did many years ago, Lord, I'm a filthy, filthy sinner. Save me, O God. Look back at verse 15. He says, If anyone loves the world, the love of the fathers, not in him. As I said previously, when referring to the love of God, this, re, this involves preference. Preference to love. And like I said, when used of God, it's God's preference to love sinners. God's preference to love his children, or the elect. Notice that he uses, if anyone loves this world, if they prefer the world. And I want to I call your attention to this. This is conscious and deliberate. This is someone who has chosen to love the world. At the end of 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul makes an amazing statement. He says, all in Asia have deserted me. And he goes on to say, and Demas, having loved this present world, has forsaken me. You read Acts, you find out that Demas, Demas traveled with Paul. Demas was involved in the planting of the churches. Demas did a lot of great religious works. But Paul says right before he's about to die that Demas having loved, and here it is, Demas loved preferentially. He loved the world. And he forsook Christ. Most people will say, well, I love Jesus more than I love the world. But church, we need to examine this. Because the love of the world is very subtle. It's very subtle. And the love of the world involves a lot of comfort and convenience. It involves a lot of entertainment, luxuries, and pleasure. And when we begin to live for these things, we begin to worship these things. We lose the love of God. Are these the things that gain your attention? Are these the things that you're striving for? Are these the things which are your greatest affection or your greatest joy? If so, the Word of God says that the love of the Father may not be in you. And I would encourage you to examine your heart and to repent. Look at verse 16 of 1 John chapter 2. Paul, uh, John says here, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. Now listen, one of the things I love about 1 John is John is unambiguous. John is a needle-in-the-eye preacher. 
You know, he doesn't mix his words. He talks about the children of light, the children of darkness. He talks about walking in the light versus walking in the darkness. He talks about truth or a lie. He is not flowering his words. Look at verse 16 again. For all that is in the world, everything that the world has to offer, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And if you think about it, all the materialism, all the consumerism of this world, the comfort, the pleasure, the sexual pleasures, the entertainment, the consumerism, the philosophy, the religion, the ease of life is not from the Father. Do you know that for the last 10 years, suicides have been on a steady increase? Do you know that the greatest group at risk for suicide is 12 to 22? Look all through Hollywood. People who would have gained fame, fortune, riches, notoriety, and they kill themselves. They find that all of this is empty. John breaks this down into three categories of life. He says, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. And it's three, these three components that are responsible for sin and temptation and enter the heart. And listen, we see this at the very, very, very beginning of creation. Turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. I want to show you this. You're going to see it in the Old Testament. We're going to see it in the New Testament. Genesis chapter 3. Particularly, we're going to look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. Now, here is the scene. Satan is in the garden. He's trying to tempt Eve. Verse 6 records... When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Now, I don't have time to exposit this whole thing, but I want to call your attention to something. Look again. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, there's the lust of the flesh. Notice the second one. And that it was a delight to the eyes. There's the lust of the eyes. And that the tree was desirable to make one wise. There's the boastful pride of life. Those three elements were involved in the fall. What did she do? She was distracted. What was... The end result, she took from its fruit and ate. The very thing that God had forbidden, she took from it and she ate. These three elements caused the fall in the garden. They brought sin into the world and they also necessitated a savior to redeem mankind. This is what the world does. This is the belief system of the world. We see the same thing again in the New Testament, in the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. 
Again, here's the scenario. Jesus, prior to his ministry, goes into the wilderness to fast and pray. And someone comes there. The devil himself. And in Matthew chapter 4, Oops, wrong place. In Matthew chapter 4, we see this. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. Right there, there's the lust of the eyes. Here are these stones, make them bread. You're hungry, man, make yourself a sandwich. What did Jesus rebuke them with? He rebuked them with the word of God. But he answered and said to them, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. There's an example for us. When tempted of the enemy, don't speak back in your own strength. Don't say that, oh, I could do this. Don't do that. With the word of God, the sword of the Spirit, use the sword of the Spirit. Speak back to the enemy with the word of God which tells you why it is necessary to know the Word of God, which why the psalmist says, Thy word I hide in my heart, that I may not sin against thee. So, strike one to Satan. Go down to verse 6. And he said to him, this is the devil, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will give His angels charge concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Therein lies the lust of the flesh. You could do this. Just do it. Go down to verse 9. Satan again. And he said to him, all these things I give you, if you fall down and worship me. And there is the pride of life. I will give you all these things. Just bow down and worship me. And of course, Jesus throws the strikeout pitch. Then Jesus said, be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And I love verse 11. Then the devil left him. And behold, angels came and began to minister to him. Go back to 1 John chapter 2. John tells us that we're not to love the world, we're not to love the things of the world, that the very things of the world are at enmity with God, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life. And now in verse 17, he gives us another reason. He says this, And the world is passing away, and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. Last week when we were looking at uh, chapter 2, verses 7 to 11, I made this statement. John challenges the believer to put the doctrine to test by demonstrating that doctrine without obedience is not saving faith. 
And all throughout this epistle, John has been declaring that obedience is the hallmark of a believer. In this verse, John is staying consistent with this truth as John cites that the world is passing away. All of its lusts are passing away. All of the things are passing away. But the one who does the will of God will abide forever. There's an interesting word, that, that key word, passing away. It means it's already in the process of passing away. Not that it will pass away. It is in the process of passing away. And boy, can you see that today? How this world is falling apart. All you have to do is tune into the news. Even if all of it is biased reporting, we see that this world is in a rapid, rapid decline. We see this ecologically. We see this culturally. We see this philosophically. We even see it theologically. The world is declining and coming to a rapid climax. Paul makes a statement in Romans 6.23. I'm sure most of you know this. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. And John states that the world and its sin is passing away. It's all declining. Sin leads to death. Sin is a wage. Think about it. You go to work, you work for a week or you work for two weeks, right? You get paid a wage, and that wage is for the work you have done. Well, sin, death is a wage, and it's payment for what has been done outside of Jesus Christ. Now, look at how that pays out versus what Paul says. The free gift of God, which is eternal life. Eternal life. Note that the principle of death is that which is of the world of sin, the prince of this world, and it is in marked contrast to the principle of life, eternal life, that is offered in Jesus Christ. Listen. As believers, if you call yourself a follower of Christ, if you say, I'm a believer, your faith must keep you near the cross. If there's anything else that interferes, well, that very well could be the world. And the world will tempt And try to pull us out. Notice that John says at the end of verse 17, the one who does the will of God abides forever. That's an action word. It involves, I hate to say, use a define a word with its word, but it involves being involved. It involves doing the very things. The Word of God teaches us, but it is up to the individual believer to do the will of God. So if you call yourself a believer in Jesus Christ, then it's incumbent upon you to persevere in the love of Christ 
And that love is evident in his church. It's evident in doing his will. It's evident in obedience to his word. It's evident in holiness and devotion to our Lord. John, in this great chapter, matter of fact, throughout this epistle we're going to see, reminds believers that those who love Christ obey him. They obey him. And he reminds believers that there's only forgiveness of sin found in Jesus Christ. He instructed us not to love the world or the world system or the things of the world, but to do the will of God. In the 1600s, there was a great preacher named Thomas Fuller. And he made this statement that I found that I thought was absolutely fantastic. Thomas Fuller said this, You cannot repent too soon because you do not know how soon may be too late. There's so much truth in that. So much truth. You've heard the very word of God and now comes the time where you have to reconcile this truth. It's either true or it's not true. What's your reconciliation going to be? Do you find that you have greater love for the things of the world than for God? Then the answer is simple. You just need to repent. You need to turn to Christ. You need to abandon everything to Christ and say, Lord, I can't do this. Many people strive. They strive to please God. They strive to do good works. But God calls men and women to faith that aren't ready, that don't have all the answers to all the philosophical and theological questions of the day. But he calls them and says, do you want forgiveness of sin? You want to be made right. I love the way Paul wrote it in Titus. He writes this, and when the goodness and kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his grace by the washing and regeneration of the Holy Spirit. God calls today. If you are outside of Christ, what holds you back? Are you being held back because you have open questions? Are you being held back because you can't surrender yourself? Is that worth your eternal soul? Come to Christ. Come to Christ. Throw everything on Christ and accept his free gift of eternal life. And to those that may say, well, Pastor, I'm a believer, but you know, you know, 
my life doesn't line up with the scriptures. What will you do? You too need to repent. You too need to ask for forgiveness of sin. You, need, you too also need to turn from sin and turn completely to Christ and say, Father, forgive me. Forgive me, cleanse me from my wickedness and cleanse me from my sin. To both of you today, I say, will you do this today? Will you turn to Christ and say, I've decided I want to follow Jesus. I'm not going to turn back. And this world's got nothing for me. And set your mind on eternity and come and be born again to a new and living hope. To have a certainty that if right at this very minute, if you were to die, you would be in paradise with God. Paradise with Christ. Will you do this? Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer.